So James, can you hear me? I can. Hear me. Okay. So first of all, I'll ask if you would state your full name for the record, spelling your first and last name. Sure. James Kitchen. That's J-A-M-E-S. Kitchen is K-I-T-C-H-E-N. And James, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth today? I certainly do. Now, for those of you who don't know you, you are a lawyer, you practice in the area of charter rights, you practice administrative law, you practice criminal law, and you've been involved in many constitutional challenges at the Justice Centre concerning COVID issues. That's right. So, and you're here to, to speak to us about a number of things, and I'm just going to let you launch in. That's great. Thank you. So, hello, everyone. Uh, I appreciate this opportunity to do this. I hope that I'll have a lot of information that's um, maybe not quite been heard in the way I'm going to say it from uh, a person who's in my situation, because most lawyers are uh, quite scared to speak as uh, candidly as, as I have and as you've just heard. Um, what I want to cover today briefly is uh, my analysis on why the courts failed to uphold and protect your rights. Not so much how, we've, we know that, I think, but why. And then I also want to talk briefly about what I call the regulatory capture of the health professional regulatory boards, um, but really all professional regulatory boards. So let's launch in. Why did the courts do what they did. So first, you need to basically, you need to understand at a basic level that our system is set up intentionally to divide power, not to have it coalesced around one person or one small body. Inevitably, we know from history that as soon as you do that, you get tyranny, you no longer have freedom, you don't have respect for individual rights, you don't have the rule of law, you have arbitrary despotism. So we have generally the legislative, executive, and the judicial. So the courts, our judiciary, are the third branch of government that's by design. Okay, these three powers are separated. Usually the executive is limited by what the legislative will allow them to do. And of course, if they step out of bounds, the people can say this is wrong. This is not lawful. Courts, please tell them it's not lawful and protect our rights. And for uh, a long time, that functioned pretty well in Canada uh, compared to the rest of the world historically. Uh, but what you had in March 2020 is, of course, the, the legislative and the judicial shut down. So you have all the power that are normally spread across these three coalesced into one, the executive, right? So you have all these, these cabinet orders, and they, of course they delegate a lot of their authority to the health um, um, ministers and, the, and the, the regional health authority leaders like um, um, Dina Hinshaw, et cetera, all across the country. So now you have health ministers and their small uh, group of people in their office and the uh, Dina Hinshaws of the country running around you know, basically ruling as, as petty tyrants. And um, you don't really have any accountability and oversight. So whether these people had good intentions to begin with or not, and of course, that may, that may be doubted, um, naturally, you know, power corrupts. And so what happens is you have these people going around and they're, they're just tyrannizing everybody who doesn't agree with them. Well, okay, so the judicial branch is supposed to do something about that. Well, first of all, they shut down for the first two or three months. I don't know how many people remember that, but that, that was immediately... Um, concerning for me, and as cynical as I tend to be, really quite shocking. They did literally shut down. They would no, were no longer ruling on cases. But when they fired back up around June of 2020, um, it quickly became obvious that they did no, they did not see their role as holding government accountable and upholding rights. They saw their role as enabling government to continue to act 
in this arbitrary, oppressive way because for the greater good, we're all in this together, et cetera, et cetera. So why? Well, the first thing I want to try to explain to you is to help you, to help regular Canadians understand, and I've been doing this for years, all through COVID and even before, you have to understand who judges are and how they get to their position, right? They're just regular people. Just insofar as lawyers are regular people, if you can believe that, we tend to be mostly regular people. Judges are just promoted lawyers, okay? So they're, they're, they're regular people who care about their professional reputations, their social reputations, and their physical safety, okay? And what I observed, at least for me, in the cases that I had in front of the judges that I was in front of, and also my colleagues and what they told me about the judges that they were in front of, I saw these very human realities really coming through. I, I saw judges who were scared, who were afraid uh, for their personal safety. Okay, um, and I and and I perceived at least for their their reputation, professionally and socially as well. There's obviously some speculation on my part there, but that's that I think played a role. But specifically, the the personal fear, the the personal uh, safety issues. Um, perhaps surprised me a little bit because I would have thought and hoped that as a judge in this country, you would recognize that there might be some sacrifice and some risk. There might actually be some um, difficult things you have to do to uphold this duty that you have, right? You're not, you're not, you're not merely uh, enjoying um, a job that you can't be fired from and that you're going to earn north of $300,000 at every year, no matter what you do actually have a duty to serve the country and that may actually involve occasionally some, some risk and some sacrifice on your part to do that. And it really seems like judges in our country do not have that perspective. They do not see themselves in, in that role. Um, and I think that's, I think that played in um, because I saw judges um, really quite concerned about their own personal safety. Um, just, just sort of the fear and the way that they looked at me and the, and then the comments that they made and the comments they made to my colleagues in court and just the way they the way they wore their masks and the way they, um, you know, got really upset if if anybody in the courtroom didn't. Uh, if anybody knows about me, I've, I've, of course, never worn a mask, never will. Um, I decided in July 2020, I'd rather give up my law license than wear a mask. Um, that, that was a very um, I deliberated about that decision that, you know, that took a lot of consideration. My wife and I sat down and thought about that beforehand. So I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't just succumb later on. And I was challenged every time I went into court, which wasn't very often physically, I got challenged. Um, I was publicly challenged in, at the coach trial. Um, I was challenged at a trial for some pastors in Edmonton that were charged 80000 for not letting a health inspector in. Um, you know, why aren't you wearing a mask? And it was almost, you know, and I'm sure you've heard this over and over again, it was almost as if the judges did, didn't know about the law or weren't aware of the human rights protections or couldn't fathom that somebody's not wearing a mask because of their religious beliefs, which is my reason. Um, and there was, there, there wasn't, uh, there seemed to be a real, real reluctance, a real hesitancy to respect that. And I don't think it was just rooted in, um, the normal, typical political reasons for not liking it, but but actual personal fear. And then, of course, that raises the question, well, why why are the judges so afraid personally? Well, obviously, a lot of them are older. You can understand that. No matter what you believe about this, they are they are the more at-risk population. So there is that factor. We have to keep that in mind. I think it also goes to show that judges are generally consumers of mainstream information, and which is part of the reason why they seem to be so impervious to inconvenient or uh, minority um, facts. Um, and information and opinions and perspectives is because they have been 
inoculated by mainstream information, right? Because these are the worlds they live in. Do judges get up and read the Western Standard in the morning? No, unfortunately, I, I'd be very surprised if any of them did. Um, they probably get up and read CBC. Uh, and, and, and that's just part of the problem. And that goes into um, my second point about who the courts are and why they did what they did. You have to understand there's, and there's, there's a lack of a conversation in this nation, I think, about this issue. You have to understand that judges are appointed, okay? Well, why are they appointed and who are they appointed by? Well, they're appointed by politicians, okay? And it's a political process. Now, do judges have to meet uh, a test for merit? Well, of course they do, okay? And, you know, certainly in, 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 from my perspective, most judges I get in front of, they're pretty competent. Um, they might have, you know, prejudices and biases and political views and ideologies, but they're pretty competent. I don't usually encounter incompetent judges. So it's not that people are being appointed to the bench merely because of their political views, but amongst there's lots of meritorious lawyers you can pick from to go on the bench, to go on the, the courts. Who are you going to pick as, as a politician? Well, inevitably, inevitably, um, whether you mean to or not, you're going to lean towards the, the judges who you know or you suspect share your political views and ideologies. And I don't just mean donating to the political party. I mean, obviously, we've heard about the judges that have donated tens of thousands of dollars to the Liberal Party. That's a very partisan allegiance. I'm talking about a deeper, more more philosophical, ideological allegiance, right? If you're a, a lawyer who has supported the, the People's Party or, or maybe the Conservative Party or whatever, pick pick your, your alternative, you know, freedom, right-leaning party, um, you know, you, you support that party probably because you hold conservative views about individual liberty, limited government, uh, the market forces are good, socialism and Marxism are bad, right? These are your these are your underlying political views, right? I mean, you don't need to talk to me very long to understand that I'm a libertarian and that I think big government is bad and individual rights are good and that human flourishing only happens in, in, in a context of maximum human individual rights and freedoms. Well, okay, so if you put me on the bench, do you think I'm going to walk around and throw around Section 1 justifying what the government's going to do? Obviously not. You don't need to be a brain surgeon to figure that out. Um, so is Trudeau ever going to appoint me to the bench? Well, of course not. Maxine Bernie might consider me, right, of course, but but Trudeau's not, right? Of course not. It's 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 not so much about whether or not I'm a partisan conservative, you know, and I'm at Olivier's rallies. It's 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 about the ideology. And so you have to understand that most lawyers in this country for a couple decades now, and I and I'm a younger one, but but from what I've seen from my from older people, it's been now 10, 15, 20, 25 years that the, the legal profession as a whole in Canada shifted to the left such that people who, who view the world the way I do and, and the way Mr. Buckley does and, and, and the way some of the other lawyers you've heard from do, we're in a very small minority, right? And so that plays out in a number of different ways. But one of them is that, you know, we are the pool of people that judges are chosen from, okay? And if a lot of judges generally are, are more left-wing than the general population of the country, that they're representing, then they're going to rule in a way that the rest of the country sometimes finds confusing. Okay. And that's, that's what we get. And, and I'm talking, obviously we've had conservative governments, but so, but even they are limited in who they can choose to put on the bench because most lawyers tend to tend to lean left. And by left, I just mean that they tend to take a lower view of individual rights and freedoms. They take a higher view of government intervention. They take a lower view of market forces 
They generally don't believe that people are really good at governing themselves. They generally believe that government intervention is required. It's good. Government is benevolent. Uh, they believe in you know the rights of the collective and individual rights are just sort of a nuisance that we tolerate when we can. That's just their worldview. That's their ideology. So of course they're going to impose that. They're invited to through Section One of the Charter. The Section One of the Charter does not it takes the it takes the rights away from the people, gives them to, to the judiciary, and says you can remake the country in your image, and we trust you to do a good job of it. Okay, this was this was the Charter's self-destruct button. And it only took 40 years for it to be pushed. And, you know, this is part of the reason why you have constitutions that don't have those self-destruct buttons that are still sort of hanging on for dear life, such, you know, as, as in our southern neighbors, who for a quarter of a millennia have had a pretty decently free society, historically speaking. Um, whereas, you know, ours, is, our, after 40 years, our, our major constitutional instrument for defending rights and freedoms has is, is already been essentially destroyed. Um, you know, freedom of expression to be is, is, is maybe is maybe the last uh, part of the charter that has any meaning beyond words on a page. And, uh, you know, and that's because of the fact that we've given all this authority to to mold the charter over to these 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 promoted lawyers. So you have to understand the role of ideology in, in judges and the fact that a lot of them subscribe to a general left wing ideology. It's been going that way for many decades now. If you were to go back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, right, you could find rulings from justices like Yakabuchi and Major. You can go back to Boucher and the King, which is a famous pre-charter case. And you can see all these wonderful ideas about individualism and freedom and the rule of law and rights and limited government. But that has died out and been replaced by the new decisions that we've had from um, the new Supreme Court justices and appellate court justices that have, that have used Section 1 to strike down our rights. And that's what happened over the course of COVID, right? And we, we, and we know that we know, we know it was section one, but, but why? And, and the last reason uh, I'm going to point you to is to maybe why this happened. Knowing that judges are just regular people, they tend to be, they tend to have left wing views and they are politically appointed partly because of their political views is what I saw is the role of chief justices. Now, now we're getting into the inner workings of how the court works. What's the role of the chief justice? Well, oftentimes it, it can be their role if they decide to exercise it a lot to uh, appoint uh, who judges or which judges are going to sit on cases. And this is typically a good thing, right? You need some sort of um, guidance in this at times, right? Ideally, you're going to have judges with appropriate experience sitting on cases that involve that are complex and involve that kind of experience. And um, what I saw is that the chief justices. Um, tended tended to, to directly intervene um, a lot, and in two ways. One, um, they tended to take a lot of the COVID cases themselves. I saw this in BC with Justice Hinkson. I saw this in Manitoba with the the primary um, justice center led uh, uh, COVID challenging case over there. Um, I saw it when I was involved in the injunction about the the international bridge between Windsor and Detroit. Um, that was heard before the Chief Justice of the Ontario Superior Court. Um, it tended to be, it was surprising to me, the, the amount that chief justices um, involved themselves in these cases, took, took them themselves, said, I'm going to take this case. And, um, and of course, you know, you look at all those chief justices' decisions, and they're all pro-government. They're all against people. They're all against the rights. They're all upholding um, the COVID narrative and the government's efforts to, to supposedly stop COVID, um, you know, universally. Um, but what I also saw, too, is uh, almost across the board, um, 
the judges I saw that were sitting on COVID cases were recently appointed uh, Trudeau appointees. Okay. So there's a couple of problems there. Um, and I, it's not so much that they're Trudeau appointees per se. It's that um, it's just there was a really strong trend. It's not like all the judges on our bench are recent Trudeau appointees. Obviously, there's lots of judges that were appointed by the Harper government, and we can go back into the liberal governments from before that, way back into the 90s and 80s. Because of course, some of our judges have been there for 20, 30 years. They were appointed when they were in their uh, 40s or 50s, and they're still there, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but that's that's just, just it. Is in, in, in my experience, between my cases and all the cases that I saw my colleagues do, we weren't getting... You know, the the 70 year old guys that have been on the bench for 25 years and have sat on a whole bunch of charter cases and have kind of had mixed rulings and, you know, were appointed before Trudeau's time. Those uh, well, and men and women, but 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 those those judges exist. We never encountered them. We never saw them. And that that I don't think that's it's hard to believe that that's mere coincidence or just merely numbers. You know, it's it's hard, it's hard to believe that a judge with with the kind of experience to handle a really complex charter case on COVID is actually being heard by a judge who's been on the bench for less than two years and has never heard that kind of case. Um, that's concerning. Why is that? Why why is that judge being selected? Presumably by the chief justice to sit on this case. It's definitely not the best qualified judge to hear this case. These cases are obviously hugely important. Um, why, why are we constantly encountering the same type of judge over and over? How come we're never getting before a judge who might actually rule in our favor because he actually does hold different uh, underlying um, ideological views about the roles of government and how, how far Section 1 should be used or abused? Um, and, you know, that's that I think contributes to the why. You know, why do we see so, so, so few decisions uh, from our courts that in any way challenge the narrative or uphold the rule of law or the rights of individuals when it comes to the vaccine mandates, when it comes to masks, when it comes to the general COVID restrictions, when it comes to all the tickets that people have gotten uh, under these under these unconstitutional laws and the all these challenges on section based on section two, which is you know free speech, freedom of religion, section seven, the right to life, liberty, security of the person, section eight, privacy. Why are all these failing? Well, I think I think part of it is because the, the judges who might actually take a different view of the law were um, either either passively or directly prevented from sitting on any of these cases. Um, there, there, are, there are a few judges left in the country I've, I've read decisions from, and I, I, I've thought to myself, I'd like to see what he or she would have had to say about this if they had been the judge at first, um, at first instance. And, um, you know, it's difficult because we don't we don't talk about this. Right. Lawyers are terrified to talk about this. I'll give you an example. And this is going to go what I'm going to talk about in my, in my second part. Uh, you know, I criticize the courts in Alberta. They had a vaccine mandate for the courthouse. OK, so lawyers and members of the public could not access certain parts of the courthouse if they were unvaccinated. And and for people who were vaccinated, they had to demonstrate proof to 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 access those areas, which is also a problem as well, not just prohibiting the people who, who can't. Um, you know, I mean, this is this is an injustice. Um, it's it's tyranny. It's oppression. Um, it's completely unbefitting of the court who is supposed to think independently for itself. I mean, if our courts are not thinking independently for themselves, if they're simply parroting what the government's saying, we obviously have a problem. Right. They're obviously not functioning as, as the independent third branch of government for not doing their job. Right. So I criticized the courts publicly. I did it in an academic way. There's, there was, there was, I mean, I did it strongly, of course, as anybody who knows the way I speak, I speak strongly, but I was not 
vulgar. I was not demeaning. I was not insulting. Uh, I did not swear. Uh, I was I was I was academic, strong but academic about my criticism. Well, sure enough, a lawyer who works at a bank in Ontario complained to the Law Society of Alberta, saying I was being uncivil and not upholding the respect for the administration of justice in the country. Well, the Law Society, instead of doing its job to dismiss that complaint, decided to invest the, investigate the complaint and uh, demand that I defend it and give a response to it. And then I had to meet with somebody, et cetera. And this went on for over a year and I had to go through this process. It took me several hours of my time. And uh, now ultimately that complaint has been dismissed, which I find uh, interesting. I actually am surprised. I didn't expect it to be. Um, I, I can only speculate as to why, but uh, I suspect that if I was um, a complete nobody, a complete no-name lawyer, it might have gone differently. Um, so you can see from that example right there why this conversation is not happening. Because who's going to start it? It's going to have to be the lawyers. Okay. Well, are they really going to take that risk? Right. I had to talk to my wife before I posted that. Wife, I do this. The law society may take my license. We're not going to be eating as well. I've said, that's okay. Go ahead. Your integrity matters more. There's not a lot of people in that position, right, who are willing and able to make that sacrifice. Here's the problem. You shouldn't have to. You should be able to have this conversation and criticize the courts and criticize these things without putting your license on the line. I'm putting my license on the line today to be here to speak with you. And I know that. And I'm prepared to do that. But I shouldn't have to. And the reason that I am is the reason why this conversation isn't happening as much. And it's part of the reason how we got here in the first place. If we'd had this co candid conversation for the last 20 years about who our judges are and what they believe and why they're ruling this way, we might not have been so ready to fall the way we did over the last three years. Right? And I and I and I, again, I point you to our neighbors to the south. Right. When they are talking about who they're going to put on the bench, they have an open, rancorous conversation or debate whatever you want to call it, about who that person is and why they're being appointed and whether or not they're good to be appointed there. Because they know Americans, well, at least more so than Canadians, understand that a lot of their rights and freedoms depend on the philosophical and political views of those nine promoted lawyers who sit in Washington. That's why they want Kavanaugh and not a judge who can't even tell you the definition of a woman. Because they know that one is going to do a whole lot better at upholding their rights and freedoms in the long run, the rights and freedoms of themselves and their children, than the judge who can't even define for you what a woman is. We don't. We, we lack that conversation in Canada, which is part of the reason why we have got into this mess. So I spent a lot of time on that. I'm going to spend a little bit less time on my next point because I want to leave a little bit of time for questions. So the courts are part of the reason all this tyranny and this... Um, abandonment of the rule of law happened. One of the other reasons, not the only, but one of them is what I call the regulatory capture of uh, regulatory colleges, professional regulatory colleges. The law society would fall into that, into that category. Now, just briefly, the whole idea of, and you probably have not given any thought to these bodies prior to COVID. Why do I care what the College of Pharmacy is or what it does? Why do I care what the College of Physicians and Surgeons is or what it, what it does? Well, you care, you should care because it has a direct role in your life. And you've probably painfully experienced that over the last three years. The idea of these colleges is that we want, well, at least as Canadians, we like all this overregulation. So we want the professional to be regulated to protect the public interest so they don't hurt us. Meanwhile, ignoring that the market would probably do a better job of that. But that's sort of a debate for another day. So we say, okay, well, 
If we have direct government control, that might be bad. That might be too much power control for governments. They might uh, wield that power over, over professionals and then control them, and then they can use that to control society uh, more. So probably not a good idea to have direct um, control of professionals, um, especially health professionals. And of course, that's part of the reason why with the bill in BC is such a bad idea. Um, so the idea is self-government. Okay, so we delegate the power to regulate and control uh, professionals to protect the public interest to the professionals themselves. And they will have legislative authority and they'll have a body to do that. And the professionals can elect uh, people to these bodies to do that. So there'll be some, uh, you know, uh, democracy behind it all. And the idea is for independence from the government, right? Again, division of power, separation, right? We don't want to coalesce all the power over everything into one body. We get tyranny. So these colleges are supposed to stand up to government when government goes too far and says, no, nope, we have clients and patients to protect. You're going too far. You shouldn't be doing this. We're the experts in this area. You're not. And let, let us tell you this is a bad idea. Okay. Again, it could be law. It could be, it could be the pharmacists. It could be the physicians. Um, it could be the accountants, whatever it is. Okay. So they're supposed to actually resist government or criticize government or engage in a dialogue with government to protect the people that they serve, right? Their job is to protect the public interest. And of course, that what that means has been lost in all of this. The colleges have interpreted it to mean protect our agenda and protect the government, but it was supposed to be protect the people, right? Professionals are supposed to serve as a bulwark, right? To stand between the people that they serve and the government. And instead, what, what happened is they did the opposite, right? And, and that enabled the government to continue to do what it did. It enabled the media to sway the masses uh, to the government's perspective, right? Because um, the people weren't hearing from the experts who were dissenting, because there were plenty who, who were dissenting. Um, and there were plenty more who would have dissented but they were scared of censorship and discipline by the regulatory college. So they didn't speak up. And then the few who did speak up, they were in fact disciplined. And I'm sure you've heard of some of these. I'll just give you some examples that I went through, right? You, some of you may be aware of the mask case I have in Alberta with the chiropractor there versus the College of Chiropractors of Alberta. You know, he, um, he went through a lot. Uh, they tried to take his license on an emergency basis, saying he was a harm to patients. Um, they failed because I intervened. Um, and then he went on this two-year-long proceeding. I called four um, experts, uh, expert witnesses, that is, about how masks don't work and they're harmful and they're dangerous. And this, this body called the Discipline Tribunal is made up of two public members and two chiropractors. So that's an interesting thing right there, the fact that it's made up half with members from the public, which can be a problem. Um, because it's hard to, hard to grasp all the issues for, for public members. And unfortunately, a lot of the public members that get into those positions are the types that like to, you know, police and control the, the professionals and tend to have a view that, you know, the, the professionals that are there must be bad, must be doing something bad to the public. So sure enough, the tribunal ignored all the evidence, right? Ignored my experts, uh, gave a, a huge wrong decision about how everything the college did was good, and uh, none of the evidence that Dr. Wall brought in from Dr. Byron Bridal, for example, or Chris Schaefer, the, the occupational health and safety expert in, in Alberta, uh, none of this evidence is any good or reliable. These people are wrong. Um, they didn't even, uh, interesting though, they didn't even cite to the record to support their, their, um, 
their decision in the end, and they decided against him. And he's now facing discipline and, and all these other things that I'm going to be going through with him. Um, you know, that's just that's just one example of how this works. Well, were there lots of chiropractors in Alberta who didn't want to wear a mask or who, in fact, didn't just didn't get caught? Sure, there was. Right. But they didn't want to go through what Dr. Wall went through. So they complied. They submitted. They bowed down. They covered their face. Right. Because they were scared of one of their patients snitching on them to the college. Right. Because the college now has just become this, you know, bulldog for AHS, Alberta Health Services, instead of independently standing up for its members and saying masks don't work. They're harmful. We know that we're not going to comply with this. Right. We, you know, and, and, if, and if you're a chiropractic patient, you know that most chiropractic patients are the types of people that would have been upset about this whole thing, wouldn't have worn a mask, uh, would have seen through the narrative and would have, would have wanted their chiropractors to stand up for them and would have wanted the chiropractic college to stand up for them. It didn't. I had some other cases, of course, with with physicians, right? The CPSA in Alberta went after a doctor because she was prescribing ivermectin. She literally saved three people's lives. Just in the weeks leading up to this new prohibition with ivermectin, right? Because we all know it works. So what's the uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta doing, doing getting in there, uh, aligning themselves with the likes of, of, of all these pharmaceutical companies who, who, who you know, contributed to the, to, the, to the loss of millions of lives over the last three years? Why are they coming in and implicitly supporting that position by um, professionally uh, disciplining a doctor who's prescribing ivermectin, right? The college, fine, maybe they disagree with the doctor, right? But it shouldn't, should not the doctor have, have some clinical um, license and some discretion to uh, prescribe things? Well, I mean, most of you would say, yes, of course, right? But no, the college comes in and says, we're gonna discipline you if you don't, start, if you don't stop prescribing ivermectin. I had to defend on that. I had another doctor who could not take the shot because of her religious beliefs, okay? Now, Sure, AHS went after her and didn't want to employ her anymore. That's one thing. That's an employment issue. Then the college went after her and made it a matter of professional discipline that she didn't take the shot, even though the reason for not taking the shot is a protected ground in human rights legislation, and the human rights legislation is supposed to be above all other legislation, as our courts have been saying for the last 20 or 30 years. Um, I had to defend her, right? I had to defend multiple nurses in BC and Alberta who, because they said online somewhere, masks don't work and you shouldn't wear them and, and please don't take the shot, it's dangerous. And uh, these these colleges wanted to take these, nur these nurses' licenses and I had to defend them. And I'm sure you're aware of all the medical doctors all across the country. There's a whole bunch in BC, Alberta, and Ontario that have either lost their licenses or are facing that uh, because they stood up to the narrative, because they actually challenged it. They actually did their job as professionals to give you the truth and defend you. And what's happened? The regulatory colleges who are supposed to lay off that and actually let professionals have their professional and clinical judgments uh, went after them and, and censored them and scared them uh, by threatening to take away their licenses and then actually taking away their licenses, which means now they don't have a livelihood, which means how can they do, how can they continue to do what they do, right? Same thing here. How can I continue to serve you and serve the nation and the work that I do if my license is taken? I'm not allowed to do it anymore, first of all. So now you've, now you've lost me from, from, from doing that. And you're probably not going to be able to hear much from me anymore because I'm going to have to go off and find a job to feed my family. and I'm not going to have time to do this, right? This is how it works in a, in a practical way. If the government can control the professionals, if the professionals are no longer independent, well, now you've removed one of the few major uh, ball works against tyranny, right? The courts are one, 
professionals and their regulatory bodies are one, right? And there's a few others. And if you systematically remove all these, tyranny is the result. The abandonment of the rule of law is the result. And that's what we've got for the last three years. I really wish that, I mean, I wasn't surprised, but I really wish these bodies had to function the way they're supposed to, because had they done that, it would have looked a lot different. And uh, I encourage all of you to care a whole lot more about how these, these regulatory colleges work. Um, they, they, they have public members on them that get appointed by government, and they have professionals that are elected by the professionals to them. And increasingly now, uh, what governments want to do is decrease the amount of professionals that are elected by themselves into it and increase the number of public members appointed by the government. That sounds good in theory because, ooh, they're public members, public representation. Yeah, okay, but who's being appointed? Again, it's like the judge scenario, right? The people being appointed by the government are those personally and politically connected to the government, which means they get in there, they're going to do what the government wants. So it's not actually necessarily good to have more public representation on these professional bodies, right? You, what you actually want is almost entirely professional representation because at least then there's more hope that those professionals are actually because because there's there's some other professionals that support them and elected them. They're going to actually do their job to hold government accountable and stand up to them. And before I finish, I'll just give you one example of that. That's what's going on now with the Law Society in Ontario. Right. You may or may not have heard years ago before COVID, we had this whole uh, thing over there with with the, the, the critical race theory um, ideology. Right. And so lawyers had to sign up to some Marxist ideology in order to continue to practice law and to do things in their firms and all this stuff. They had to sign this what's called the statement of principles. And these principles were basically uh, Marxist principles about race. And um, so what happened is the lawyers said, no, we're not doing this. And um, my friend Lisa Bildy got together with a bunch of lawyers and they ran in, um, I think it was 2018 or 19, around there. They, they ran and they, a bunch of them got elected to the, the Law Society uh, 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 as ventures. And they were able to put a stop to some of that, right? And now we're having another election again for the ventures in Ontario. And that's the main issue, right? Is the Law Society going to continue to be this woke uh, uh, arm of enforcement for government ideology, or is it going to actually do its job to simply regulate lawyers in a limited way? And uh, that election is going to matter for the rights of Ontario, as let me tell you, um, because the direct result of that is that lawyers like me who actually defend uh, the rights of the minorities who oppose the government tyranny um, are on the chopping block if these bodies get too much power. The Law Society of Alberta is having an election later this year. And you know, the public should actually care and get involved and be aware of who's running and, um, you know, what may happen if we get a, 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 a law society of Alberta that's completely woke and completely censorous and has gone way beyond its mandate and simply politically punishes all the people who uh, criticize it or oppose it uh, like I do. Um, people are people, their, their rights are going to suffer. And um, the public needs to start caring about this stuff and paying attention so we can somehow try to prevent uh, COVID from happening again. So that's everything I had to say in my initial presentation. That leaves a few minutes for questions, I hope, and I'm, um, I'm ready to answer those. James, before I turn you over to the commissioners, you've spoken about <clears throat> Section 1, and I think you refer to it as the self-destruct button for the Charter. I'm wondering if you can also speak about the doctrine of mootness and how that has been used to affect COVID cases. Sure. The idea behind mootness is that 
um, the courts will say, well, look, we don't want to waste our time on academic debates. There has to be a real practical issue, okay? Um, we don't want to just rule to make the law better. That's a waste of our resources. So the problem with mootness is that judges have been overusing and abusing this to help government, and government knows this, right? Everybody knows that the law moves pretty slow, right? If government puts in law A, well, it's going to take the lawyers two months to, at least to get together and mount a challenge to it and file it, okay? At least, more, maybe more like four months, okay? Then they got to get to a hearing, which takes more months. So maybe within eight months, we've filed our challenge and we're getting a hearing, okay? Well, maybe six months after the law was in place, the government just yanked it out and said, well, we don't, we're, not gonna, we're not doing it anymore, okay? Which I guess is good, right? But damage done, what are you, what are you supposed to do about that, right? You've lost your job, you couldn't get your passport, um, you've got dragged out of Walmart, um, you were denied medical uh, procedures and now it's too late, damage done, right? Well, so what happens is the government goes in and says, well, it's moot now. We, we don't, we don't, the law's not in place anymore. It's a waste of time to go back and evaluate whether it's good or not because what's the result? I mean, the law's not there. You can't strike it down even if you find that it's unconstitutional. And the courts say, hey, yeah, you know what? That's a, that's a really good point. Um, you guys are fine. Um, we're not gonna, we're not gonna rule on that. It's moot. It's academic. There's no practical value to the country if we actually rule on whether or not that law was unlawful. And I've seen that used over and over and over and over and over again, uh, through justice center cases, through some private cases. Um, I've had it come up a little bit in my cases, but I've seen it a lot in my colleagues' cases. And it, it is, it's, it's, it's a misuse or abuse of the law, in my opinion. I mean, of course, the courts would disagree with me. They'd say, well, no, this is exactly what the law should be. And I would say, well, it shouldn't be because the reality is, is you're giving government free pass. They know darn well now that they can put a law in place and keep it in just long enough until finally there's a hearing on the on the challenge that the lawyers were able to get together and now we'll yank it, right? But the damage has been done and the government can keep putting in unconstitutional laws, yank it, and then just put in another one too. See, this is part. This is the problem. It's not hard to figure out, right? You put in a law, you yank it before the hearing, and then the judge says it's moot, and then you just put it back in again. And then what? Same thing, but lawyers have to get together and get a hearing, right? And the courts are enabling this. And I'd like to think that they know better because I don't think they're that stupid, right? And so this is just another, yet another way that government is getting a free pass, being able to do whatever it wants, which is not the rule of law. That is, that is arbitrary rule. That is tyranny, right? The whole idea of the, of the Canadian justice system is to have the rule of law, have government actually follow the law, and have the courts hold them accountable. Well, that's not going to happen if every time the government passes a law and then yanks it just before a hearing, they're able to get away with it because the, because the courts say it's moot. That's been a big problem all through COVID. It was a problem before, but it's been a big problem all through COVID. Thank you, James. And I will turn you over to the commissioners for questions. Thank you so much for your testimony today. I just have a well, few, I have a few questions. Um, you spoke a little bit uh, early in your presentation about um, the, the process of appointing judges and how there is a political element to it. I'm just wondering if you have any uh, views or recommendations on how Canada could improve upon that process. Well, one, you could actually have some judges elected. That's pretty radical, but that does happen uh, in the lower, in some of the lower court levels in the U.S. They have, a, they have a mixed system where most are appointed, but some are elected. I don't think that's a bad idea to introduce some of that. Um, one, one other recommendation would be um, to, you know, for people, 
you know, our country is very fractured, right? I mean, Albertans think very differently than the people who live in the, in the, in the GTA, generally, or in, their, or in Ottawa. Um, I think a lot, of, a lot of Albertans or Saskatchewans, Saskatchewanians or Manitobans or BCNs, they don't realize that the judges at their superior level, okay, so this would be uh, not the provincial court level, but the, but the, but the main level of court with, with inherent jurisdiction, okay, um, I think it's called the King's Bench in Saskatchewan, it's called the King's Bench in Alberta. Um, these judges, okay, they rule on provincial cases all the time, okay, but they are federally appointed. So every King's Bench judge in Saskatchewan is appointed by Trudeau and Ottawa. It's not appointed by the Premier of Saskatchewan. Provincial court level are, so that's good, but not that level. Same with the Court of Appeal. Who promotes those judges to the Court of Appeal? Trudeau, right? So in Alberta, we had a judge come in, brand new. Uh, she ruled in some COVID cases, ruled in favor of the government, and then she was, she was promoted to the Court of Appeal, right? Well, you can guess why. And, and Trudeau was the one who did, who did that appointment. Right. So the, the judges who sit on the most important levels of court in each province are federally appointed. Maybe that should be changed. I, I suggest it, it, it should be. Right. Uh, it should actually be the provincial government that appoints those judges who are in those uh, courts in the province, who have jurisdiction over the province. And then that, that way, at least hopefully, you have judges that reflect better the uh, views and values of the people in those provinces, which helps, helps protect those provinces from the tyranny of the federal government in Ottawa. So that's one recommendation. I guess my third recommendation is it would be nice, if, and I, I mean, obviously I don't have high hopes of this happening, but it would be nice to open up the conversation, you know, both at the cultural level, but at the political level of let's talk about how judges are appointed and why they're appointed, and let's start being honest with ourselves, okay? Yes, there's a merit-based test, and everybody we're talking about in Parliament about who we're going to select has passed that merit-based test. So what's, what's the remaining selection criteria? Look. It's the judge's political views, okay? And it's, you know, we we like this judge because we think they're going to bring the country in a better direction, right? The liberals think the country is in a better direction when the government has more control. Conservatives think the country goes in a better direction when the individuals have more uh, rights and freedoms. Let's actually be honest and have that conversation and admit that, right? And we do a little bit in the states. I mean, obviously, there's still this sort of charade that, that judges just rule about law and they don't impart their political views on the, on the cases. I mean, we know that's all hogwash. And in fact, that's a good thing it is um, because we want judges who say, this is the Constitution, these are the rights, I'm going to uphold them, I'm not scared of the government. Um, at least if you're, if you're a guy like me, you want that. So let's be honest about it at the political level and have that conversation. Um, I'd, I'd like to see that happen. Right now, it's, it's really oblique and it's really, um, it's really uh, vague what's really happening and nobody's having an honest conversation about who's actually being appointed and why. And I think we should just have that and be honest with ourselves and say, okay, if the judges are going to be politically appointed, not elected, then let's talk about why. It's a merit-based test, but it clearly can't be only a merit-based test. So let's be honest and let's have that part of our conversation when we decide, okay, we're going to elect Trudeau, we're going to elect Poliviev. Well, or Poliviev, we know, we know Poliviev is going to put freedom-minded judges on the bench. We know Trudeau is going to put socialist judges on the bench. And maybe, hey, you want socialist judges so that you can vote for Trudeau, and that's part, that's part of your reasoning. Maybe you don't, so that's part of your reasoning. I mean, that's, you know, there were millions of Americans that you know, held their nose and voted for Trump because they wanted Kavanaugh and Gorish on their bench to protect the rights of their children. We don't have that conversation in Canada at the political level or the cultural level, and I would like to see that change so we can be honest with ourselves. And so is one of the ways that that could be done through hearings for judicial appointments, prior to judicial appointments? Yeah, they should, yeah, they should be much more public than they are right now. 
members of the public should be able to come in and, and in some limited way even be able to ask questions, I think. I think you can look at the American system of, of, the, how, of how they do it, say, how can we do this and maybe do it even better to have this be as transparent a process as possible, right? And maybe not at the King's Bench level per se, but especially at the appellate level and at the Supreme Court of Canada level. These are the, these are the judges who are remaking the country in their own image and deciding how you and your children are going to live. So the public should have some input and there should be some grilling from the public about who these people are. Why should judges from the King's Bench be appointed by Trudeau to the Court of Appeal without the public having any say in it and, 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 and being told, hey, notice to the public, we're going to have a public hearing on whether John Smith is going to be uh, promoted to the Court of Appeal. Come have your input. Come have your say. That should happen. Thank you. Uh, my next question has to do with uh, your discussion about um, the chief justices of the court and the discretion that they have to appoint particular judges to cases. And I'm just wondering uh, if you have any thoughts or recommendations on how uh, any perceived problems with that process could be addressed, um, whether there's something that could be done in maybe the court rules themselves that talk about how cases are, are assigned, or if you have any thoughts whatsoever on that. That's really tough because the, the court does need to be independent in order to do its job. Um, so you don't want too much interference with that. Um, at the end of the day, you do somewhat just have to rely on these judges uh, really caring, actually perceiving what's actually good for the nation and caring about that enough to um, sort of let things unfold. Or, you know, maybe to say, okay, look, um, I'm going to make sure that there's a balance, you know, my 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 lefty colleague here and my righty colleague here, and I'm going to give I'm going to give one case to him and one case to her, and let them shake it out, and then I'll let the court of appeal deal with it. Um, that's that's how it should happen, and it's difficult to say okay, well we can fix that by having more oversight or control, um, because that right there is going to challenge the the independence of the courts, and we don't want that. We want the courts to be independent. The trouble it, trouble was the lack of ideological dependence over the last two or three years. So I think, I think the way you really, you really fix that is um, you start to have a more transparent process about who's being appointed to the bench. And, and hopefully through that, you get a more balanced representation of the people of the country on the bench. We always talk about the diversity uh, insofar as judges representing um, uh, the country, but we only talk about it in this, in this woke, uh, superficial way of skin color and what genitals you have. And that's ridiculous, right? Um, is that going to reflect the visual diversity of the country? Sure. Is it going to reflect the political or philosophical uh, diversity of the country? No, it's not likely to. And so the way you fix that ultimate downstream problem of the chief justices is, is at the source by having a judiciary that actually philosophically represents the country. And so you actually have judges who think the way I do alongside the, the, the Marxist judges who think government is great and let's just rubber stamp everything so they can get on with making the world a better place. And, and then that way you actually have that, that philosophical debate amongst the court itself. And then the public is, 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 is watching that and aware of that and gets to have a say each election on who they're going to elect and then who, and, and then who that elected person is going to ultimately appoint this is the, to the Supreme Court of Canada and how they're going to, how they're going to decide that, right? I mean, abortion is a perfect example in the states, right? We got enough conservative judges. Now the states have to say over abortion instead of the federal government. It's the same thing. That process should be happening here, and, it, and it's not. So I don't think the the way to fix that is to come in and try to exert too much influence over the chief justices. Thank you. 
So I'm hearing you say that the, the way of dealing with it is really right up front at the, through the appointment process. But in terms of where the courts are at today, um, we had a uh, just, uh, witness in our last set of hearings in Winnipeg who was a former justice who, when I questioned him about what the courts could do um, to address the, the state of where they are and the decisions that they've made throughout COVID, that he thought that a self-reflection exercise should be conducted within the courts themselves. I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. I think that would be better than nothing. Um, but I, I think that has its limitations. Um, I, 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 don't know if, I don't know if the court's even capable of that at, at this point. Um, you know, the, the number of, you know, small C conservative judges, uh, I would guess are outnumbered, you know, eight to one. Um, and, and their voices are not tolerated, right? Right. The, 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 the left-wing ideologies are not tolerant of differing viewpoints. Um, the right-wing ideologies are, they don't mind that. They disagree vehemently, but they don't, but they, but they tolerate, um, the disagreement. And, um, so I, I, I just, yeah, I, I guess I agree. I just, I, struggle with whether or not that's going to actually really, really help. Um, you know, I, I, I unfortunately take a fairly pessimistic view on this. I say if this problem can be fixed at all, it's going to take, it's going to take a long time and a lot of hard work. Uh, it's going to take a lot of young people who actually believe in rights and freedoms to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be a lawyer and I'm going to get involved in this system and maybe even someday I'll be a judge. And it's going to take a lot more lawyers to be more uh, brave uh, if they actually feel this way and to speak up. And it's, it's just it's going to take years and years of systemic reform. It's going to take years, you know, for years we we have been putting uh, left wing judges on the bench, and 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 that's culminating now where where we are. The law is dramatically different from what it was in the eighties and nineties when we when we actually had a free society and the charter was working and we had judges upholding the rule of law. It's dramatically it took twenty twenty five years to get here. It's going to take probably just as long to get out. We're not going to fix it overnight, but we have to ha start having the conversations at the cultural and political level, and, and hopefully then downstream we can start um, you know, systemically fixing the problems on the bench by having more transparency, having people with, with varying viewpoints that are getting on the bench to reflect the views of Canadians. Not everybody in Canada is a socialist who thinks government's great. Some people actually do believe rights and freedoms are good. Let's, let's reflect that instead of calling these people bad names and stacking the court with people that'll just keep shutting those people up. Um, I don't know if that self-reflection is going to be nearly enough. I guess it's a good start. Thank you. I just have one more question because I think the other commissioners have some as well. So I'll, I'll restrict myself to one last question, uh, which has to do with the charter itself. So we had a, a witness in Toronto, a law professor who um, spoke to the need to amend the Charter, uh, I think for some of the similar uh, reasons that you were talking about describing Section 1 as a self-destruct button. And um, I'm just wondering uh, what your thoughts are on whether or not Canada needs to amend the Charter. Well, absolutely. It's, it's, it's useless uh, for its original purpose was to be a shield for the people against the government. Um, it's been rendered useless. Um, I think we'd probably be in a better spot if we got rid of it. There were a very few people who said in the 70s and early 80s, the Charter will take away freedoms in the long run. It won't increase them. Okay, If you go back to, to Supreme Court decisions prior to the Charter, they were strong on free speech and freedom of religion and all kinds of other areas um, when it comes to individual rights and freedoms. But we didn't need the Charter. And, and, and it, only, it only looked like it helped in the very beginning because of who the judges were that were interpreting it and applying it. Um, so get rid of it. 
Um, amended, sure. Well, obviously, we, we, you want to get rid of uh, Section 1 and, and probably Section 33, the notwithstanding clause. Uh, chuck those two out. Um, maybe you have a workable document, um, because now what you've done is you've taken away the discretion from, from the judiciary to remake the country in their own image, and now it's, if there's a rights violation, the law is struck down or the government action is struck down. Period. Absolute rights. That's what the American system is. Look how much better it is. Look how much longer it's lasted. There is no, the government can do whatever it wants if the judge agrees with it in the Constitution of the United States of America. It is, government shall not do this. And if the courts find a rights violation, that's it done. Right? It's not that in Canada the courts don't find rights violations. They do all the time. It's just, it's just sort of like, you know, it, it's just part of the process. We find the rights violation and then we justify the other section. Um, get rid of section one. It's just, it's, it's, it renders the whole charter useless to the people. Forty years is not a long time in the history of law. The fact that our Constitution has been rendered uh, useless in 40 years is really quite pathetic. And so that should be obvious. I mean, I, I guess it's not obvious to the public, but, but, but to legal scholars, that's, that's obvious that that was a poor document if it only took 40 years for it to self-destruct. So amend it, maybe, but I would say chuck the whole thing. Um, the country was in better shape as far as rights and freedoms before it was inst instituted. But whatever you do, amend it, replace it, chuck it. The problem is giving all this power to the judges to remake the nation in their image, and then the governments appoint the judges so the governments can do it through the courts. And the whole system at a, at a philosophical fundamental level is wrong, and it's taken 40 years for that to be revealed. So it needs to be fixed, whether it's through amendment or complete abandonment. Thank you. Good morning, James. Um, Thank you for your testimony. I was thinking as you first started speaking about when Jesus came to a city and uh, he wanted to bring peace, but their eyes were hid and he wept. And I thought, wow, is that where we are in our country? But then I listened to you say we need a conversation. And that's what we're doing here. We're, we're starting the conversation. We're bringing forward a conversation. We're looking at ways that we can contribute and offer hope again in this country. I do have a couple of questions. We've seen a number of losses recently in the court, courts. For, for example, Servetus in BC. As these cases are not being appealed, don't these rulings have a potential to be cited or even become precedent setting in future litigation? And how do we counter that? Because I believe in that particular case, it was a parent who brought forward her concerns, and she didn't go through the administrative process, you know, exhausting all the appeal process through the administrative part of it. But then, you know, she loses in court, she has a good heart, she has her own motivations, and so she walks away, and that precedent is set, and there is no one else that can step in and appeal in that particular case. I'm just wondering, what does that, what is that, those lasting precedents gonna do in this country if we can't change the conversation. Well, they're very dangerous, and it's always a conversation that, that um, me and my colleagues have, is how do we avoid setting more bad precedents? You know, and, and there's, almost, there's almost a hesitation to, to litigate in this area because we don't want to just keep giving the courts um, cases that they can rule on to set bad precedents to support you know, the, 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 a further abandonment of rights down the road. Um, it's sort of a catch-22 because, I mean, if you don't, if you don't litigate, then you, you don't have the possibility of setting the good precedent. And if you litigate, you have the possibility of setting the bad one. What do you do? Um, I mean, the lower, courts, the lower court decisions, so, you know, non-appellate level, so first instance trial level court decisions, 
um, their precedential value is limited because it, it doesn't bind even the same court. Um, it doesn't have a lot of impact outside of the province that, it, that it's in. Um, so it's, it's, its damage is limited insofar as that precedent is not in any way binding or even necessarily uh, influential. You get to the Court of Appeal level, now you're making binding law, right? So the, the, the Court of uh, King's Bench in Saskatchewan has to follow what the Court of Appeal in Saskatchewan says. Okay, so if, if you appeal, you're actually potentially creating a worse precedent uh, if the Court of Appeal is going to uphold it. Um, so there's, there's no easy way to fix this. All we can do is keep trying. Um, a lot of these cases, um, you know, as it takes years for these to go through the courts, a lot of these cases are at the appellate level now or on their way to the appellate level. Um, the courts of appeal in this country could turn this around if they wanted to. Um, the courts of appeal in BC and Saskatchewan and Alberta and Ontario and eventually the Supreme Court of Canada could turn this around. I'm not really hopeful, even if the courts of appeal may uh, do a good job somewhere. Of course, I mean, our court in Ottawa is, it's, it's, is only two people there who really uphold the Charter Rights and Freedoms, uh, Justice Brown and Cote. Um, I haven't seen from the other seven of them that they, that they really have any kind of um, acceptable regard for uh, what those rights actually mean and for the role that Section 1 should play, if any. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not excited about what's going to happen when these COVID cases get to the Supreme Court of Canada, assuming at least some of them do. Um, but, you know, that's, that's just how it works in the law. You, you have to take the risk of setting bad precedents in order to go after uh, the law or the government action that, that, that is wrong. And I, I, um, I don't have a good answer for how we avoid the bad precedents. I just know that if we, if, we, if we continue to set them as we have for the last two and a half, three years, the long-term bad consequences of that is that we're, we're just basically, it's a big neon sign of government saying, yep, you can do whatever you want five years from now because you're going to be able to rely on all this COVID case law about how government can get away with anything under Section 1, right? So that's why I say the problem is, is to deal with the law itself, is, is remove Section 1 of the Charter altogether, because that's the only way you can actually wholesale, in a wholesale manner, get rid of the precedents, is to actually change the Constitution. And my second question is, um, uh, yesterday we heard testimony that those fined under COVID mandates were seeing their fines increased by the prosecutor when they got to court. I'm just wondering what it will take to restore justice in this nation so that administrators, apart from judges, are not permitted to go above the law, as in this case, threatening to increase fines before, beyond the scope of the fine the police gave and what is a, considered acceptable by the legislature. It's my view that too many laws are a bad thing. Uh, discretion is uh, generally actually a good thing. Everything, can, all these systems and all these laws and our constitution and our whole societal structure are only as good as the people who live in the society and who fill these roles. It's only as good as, as so far as there are enough individuals who are moral and ethical and actually understand to some degree what is good and right for people, for humanity, for a society, right? If people honestly believe that um, Marxism is the path to better human flourishing, it's going to impact their morals and ethics, and their morals and ethics are going to be corrupted by that corrupt ideology. But if they actually believe that individual uh, rights and freedoms and the, the, the ability for people to live um, according to their own uh, view of what's best, um, with as few restrictions as possible is the path to human flourishing, are they going to have types of morals and ethics that are going to guide them to use their discretion in a good way? Um, so ultimately, you fix that, I think, at the cultural and, and societal level. 
not by just having more laws, right? And I mean, this goes back fundamentally, philosophically, going back to the last 300 years, right? You can only have a society that is self-governed through limited government and you know limited laws and a lot of freedom and an open market if the people are generally somewhat moral and so therefore can actually govern themselves, right? That's what the, the French uh, philosopher and observer, observer observed in America, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville. That's what he observed. This American way of living free is only possible because the Americans are generally a fairly moral people and can actually engage in self-government, right? That's who Canadians are going to have to be, right? And they're going to have to come to terms with the fact that historically, whether you like it or not, those the most moral and therefore the most free societies have been informed by Judeo-Christian values and morals and beliefs, right? All the other tyrannical, tyrannical societies in, in history um, generally didn't have those views and values, and generally the people could not govern themselves without, without chaos and violence, and so needed the strong arm of some sort of state or, or, or emperor or, or ruler over them in order, in order to keep the, 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 the chaos from destroying everything. Um, you have to go back to the philosophy of how to live in a society that is self-governing and is, and is moral and is free and recognize that, yes, if the, if the people, the, each individual who's fulfilling these roles and exercising their discretion, if they don't have some sort of uh, morality, if they don't have some sort of view that the world is a better place and people are free, then they're going to abuse uh, their discretion, they're going to become corrupt in the way that they do things, and you're going to have less freedom, less equality, by the way, as well, and you're going to have abuse of power, and you're going to have corruption, you're going to have uh, dissidents and minorities like those who, you know, didn't want to take the shot or didn't want to wear the mask or didn't want to comply with everything. They're going to be, they're going to suffer as second-class citizens because inevitably without morality, what you're going to have is just mob rule implemented through all these people um, exercising their discretion in a way that, that upholds that mob rule. That's what we've seen. I don't think you can fix that through just putting in a better rule or a better law. You have to fix that at the human level. That is the only way to ultimately fix it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I've got uh, some fairly basic questions, I think, and then I have some questions that will probably get us both in trouble. The first one is, are judges subject to the rulings of the law society, considering they are lawyers or promoted lawyers? They're not. They're not. There is a body, I think it's called the Judicial Council. Uh, it's a body across the country that's made up of the chief justices and the associate chief justices. And this body um, self-regulates judges, right? So, uh, for example, there was a judge, um, if I'm getting my story right, and so take this with a grain of salt, but I, I seem to recall when Trump was elected, there was a judge, I forget where it was, I think it was somewhere out east, as sort of a joke, it's an older guy, thought he could still joke, um, he walked into the court one morning with, I think, some sort of Trump hat or mega hat or whatever, and everybody with their hair on fire about this, right? And so... You know, who's the body that deals with that? Well, it's the Judicial Council that deals with that. So, again, you have a problem, right? If all the chief justices and associate chief justices who are politically appointed to those positions hold a particular view about what it means for judges to be, you know, uh, professional or acceptable in, in their conduct, uh, those are the ones enforcing it. Well, then obviously judges are going to self-censor and they're going to be scared to speak out and they're going to be scared to act or do in a certain way because they don't want to be sanctioned by the Judicial Council, which can basically 
um, you know, sanction them just by just by telling them, giving them, a, you know, telling them smarten up. Or this council can actually recommend to the government to have this judge removed. That's extraordinarily rare in Canada, but that's actually the process for which how a judge would get removed is, is the judicial council would recommend that Judge X is, you know, he's out to lunch and he needs to be removed from the government by his post. He's no longer the fit to, to actually be a judge. Um, so that there's sort of an internal regulation amongst judges through this judicial council, and that right there is, 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 is somewhat influenced by the government of the day because the people who sit on that are appointed to their positions. Has the judicial council, to your knowledge, made similar types of um, restrictions on judges that you experienced with the Law Society yourself concerning the, uh, the narrative, the COVID narrative? Good question. I'd like to know that. I, I'm not aware. I'm not aware of that. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I wish I wish I knew. My my guess my guess is uh, my guess is no, but I just don't know. We've heard a great deal of testimony in the last uh, um, several weeks from people who talked about a what Dr. Christian said was the fundamental basis of med modern medicine, and that was uh, uh, informed consent. And we know, or at least we've had testimony, that people who were given the shot, and there's been a great deal of testimony on this from people who actually experienced this, were really told nothing before they got their shot. They weren't told, for instance, pregnant women weren't told that it wasn't tested on pregnant women. Um, and, and I can go on about that, but I, I'm, again, I, I'm short for time here. But So my question comes down to this. Are you aware of any College of Physicians and Surgeons in Canada bringing uh, a doctor or, or some other practitioner to task for not having fulfilled this most fundamental precept of medicine, and that is giving, allowing people to make an informed consent when so many have testified that they were not? No, uh, I'd be shocked if, if um, a College of Physicians and Surgeons did that. Uh, I currently have opened a, a complaint from a member of the public uh, against Dr. Dina Hinshaw as, as a doctor, not, not, not as the Chief Medical Officer of Health, but as a doctor, because she is a regulated member of the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta. Um, you know, a member of the public has complained about her, um, partly along that basis, um, the fact that she was you know, recommending these shots for his, his children, his teenagers, um, and really that recommendation was, was, was so unsupported scientifically that it does stray into unprofessional conduct. Um, and so that complaint is before the College of Physicians of Surgeons of Alberta. So they're going to have to make a decision about that that I will publicize. And, you know, I fully expect the College of Physicians of Surgeons to completely exonerate uh, Dina Hinshaw and say that she did everything right and that they're proud of her and that there's no professional misconduct. Um, right, but if they were acting independently... Uh, they would they would actually make a decision um, to have right now it's at the preliminary stages of whether or not this because the complaint's already been dismissed and I've appealed the dismissal of it right so we're not even getting into the actual hearing of it but if this if this body was doing its job and say we need to investigate this we need to see the evidence we need to have the scientists and the experts come forward we need to have a full public hearing on this and we need to figure this out right uh, me and my client both fully expect the college to not do that we, we expect them to protect. Dr. Dina Hinshaw, we expect them to protect any doctor who was complained about for not properly giving informed consent to the people that they administered the shot to or recommended that the shot be administered to. No, I expect the college to do the opposite. 
to continue to toe the party line and to protect the, the COVID narrative and to protect the government and protect the doctors that did that and, and, and to continue to use all of their enforcement efforts to censor the doctors who disagree with them and disagree with the government, disagree with the COVID narrative. And again, that's, that's, that's the problem. Right. These colleges are doing the opposite of what they should be doing. So, so that talks about one of the most fundamental beliefs held in our medical system. I want to now ask you about what I believe, or I, I want to ask you, is, is not a fundamental belief of our justice system is that every party standing before the court is of equal stature and the law will be applied evenly regardless of who you are, whether you're Ken Drysdale or whether you're the government of Canada? That's the ideal. We're not living up to it, right? It, I mean, it's the ideal that we have informed consent. We're not living up to it. It's the ideal that we accommodate uh, Christians because religious beliefs are protected in the Human Rights Act as much as we accommodate transgender people or black people or whatever, but we're not. We're not living up to those ideals. The laws are only as good as the people who choose to enforce them and live by them and, um, you know, try to implement them. Um, it doesn't matter. The ideals are not being met because the people just don't care anymore to meet them, right? Imagine how, 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 how morally bankrupt you have to be as a person to, to say, I'm going to fire you because you won't inject yourself with this experimental injection, right? And the government's mad at me and telling me I have to do this, right? You're clearly a coward. You clearly have no moral compass anymore. We have hundreds of thousands of Canadians that are completely morally bankrupt, and that's what they've done over the last three years is they've shouted at people who won't wear masks and they fire people who won't take a shot and they've refused discrimination to religious people because they because they can't stand them. And, it, you know, they've they've said you're not equal because, you know, the you, you won't agree with our science and you won't agree with the government and you won't agree with the narrative. So no, you're not equal to us. And, and I mean, that's what the ideology of Marxism teaches. Right. It actually teaches inequality in the name of equality. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, here we are. Right. We're not living up to our ideals as a nation at all. And I think it just goes to show that we've been a lot more like the whitewashed tombs that Jesus talked about when he was when he was talking to the Pharisees. than we've been willing to realize and admit we put on this show that we are nice and compassionate and caring. And meanwhile, deep down, we're not. And when the, when the crap hits the fan, like with COVID, it all comes out. We're exposed for the morally bankrupt, cruel, vicious people that we really are. And we need to we need to admit that and come to terms with that if we're ever going to get out of this and 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 address our moral failings as a people. Because I don't care how many laws you have or how good they they are on paper, they're useless without some sort of cultural morality about what is good and evil, about what is good and what is bad and what is right, and and what you know and and individual rights and how they should actually be respected. Uh, you, you talked uh, about the issue of moot. Uh, uh, of mootness and and but we didn't talk about or you didn't mention anything about the practicality of that and what I'm talking about is um, I believe uh, there was a uh, Brian Peckford had launched uh, some kind of a of a, of a challenge against uh, charter what he said was charter infringements and the government declared it moot and what kind of consequences uh, financially does that have for a plaintiff? when the government declares something moot can you can and and how does that does that and does that have um an, a chilling effect on someone else who might want to bring a case forward 
Well, it does because it takes a lot of money. Somebody has to pay for this, right? Or somebody has to take a huge cut in, in the income that they're earning as a lawyer in order to run these cases. They take tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars, at least at market value, to bring these cases to the courts, right? And then, so all that money's down the drain because the, because the, the courts just said, oh, it's moot. We're not going to rule on it, right? So there's, there's one financial consequence. Right. But part of the problem and part of the reason that the, the Justice Center existed, part of the reason Liberty Coalition Canada exists, which is the organization I work with now, is because we recognize that ultimately none of these cases about civil liberties are ever likely to come to the court because they cost money, a lot of money to bring. And who's just going to come up with that kind of money? And even if they have it, are they really willing to spend it on, on something like that? Right. The, the only way you can you can challenge the government in, in a lot of ways through these civil liberties challenges, these charter challenges is to crowdfund and pull the funds and to take the best cases and, you know, to, to, to pay the lawyers a reasonable rate to run the cases all the way and to finally get a ruling from the courts. Because the courts don't just rove around finding charter infringers. They're not supposed to, really. And so they have to be brought to them, and it takes a lot of resources to bring them. And when the courts just dismiss them as moot, right, yeah, it's a waste of a lot of resources. Which So you drain the resources for those challenges to continue to happen. There's only so many resources, and there's the chilling effect. Why should I even bother challenging the law? The court has got the government's back. They're just going to rule it's, it's moot or they're just going to justify it under Section 1. Why should I even why should I even bother? So, yeah, there is that there is that chilling effect, um, you know, and then you and then you have the reality that the court, if it wants to, can award costs against the, the plaintiffs or the, the applicants and say, look, you never should have brought this challenge. This law has already been taken out. It's moot. You should have withdrawn your challenge as soon as that happened. We shouldn't be here today. The government had to expend resources to defend your action. I'm going to award some costs against you. You're going to have to pay some of the some of the government's costs. Uh, that sometimes does and sometimes does not happen in those types of cases. It's up to the court whether or not to award those costs. So, yeah, there's lots of costs and lots of chilling effect that result from the courts just constantly um, saying it's moot or it's justified under Section 1. Eventually, the people just say, we don't have, the, we don't have any more money. We spent it all, and we, we've just given up because it's, just, it's, it's, it's not worth it uh, to continue to spend this um, and not get anywhere. You talked about at the beginning of the uh, pandemic how the courts shut down. And we've heard from other witnesses that, you know, they're recognizing the three different branches of government, you know, the legislature, the administration, the judiciary. But I want to ask you about the fourth level of government, and that is the media. The media plays an incredibly important role in our democracy in that they're the interface between all three levels of those government to the people, and their role is to report to the people what's going on so that people can make an informed decision. Can you comment on, on that aspect of what went on in the pandemic, the media's role in, 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 in this whole thing? Well, only briefly because, you know, I mean, I, I, I litigate publicly. I do, I do a lot of media work, so I'm familiar with, with media. Uh, I, I see it as a tool to, to educate the public and to hold the courts accountable and to hold government accountable. And I use it to the best of my ability. I mean, obviously, you don't see me on CBC every day. You're, you're going to see me on the Western Standard and the Epoch Times, et cetera. Um, so I, I guess I would, just say, I would just say two things. Obviously, the media is corrupt and biased, pro-COVID narrative, um, um, propping up the government. Um, you know, part of that is completely explained by the fact that a lot of these, a lot of these mainstream media outlets are receiving money from the government. And it's obvious why that's a bad idea. You're an idiot about human nature. You can't see why that's a bad idea. That never should have been allowed. Um, if there have been any government act or, or, or um, any litigation against that, the court should have done their job to say, no, 
um, that's an infringement of of uh, freedom of, of the press, freedom of expression, because obviously uh, the press is not going to be independent if it's receiving money from the government that it's trying to criticize. Um, so obviously the, the media terribles the whole thing and, and has contributed dramatically to the whole thing. But I guess, again, I would go back to saying to the people, stop being so gullible. Stop only watching mainstream sources. Seek out alternative news sources. Stop Stop watching and listening to CBC or Global or CTV or whatever. Start reading the Western Standard. And, and don't just read, by the way, your favorite alternative news outlet. Read five of them. Get the different perspectives, right? Um, people got to stop. Uh, people don't realize how much power they do actually still have in, in the quasi-democracy that Canada still is. You know, withdraw your market support for these, these mainstream organizations. Go get, stop bemoaning the fact that the mainstream media is lying about everything and make sure that you never participate in that by never consuming mainstream media and telling everybody else, hey, you should, probably should not consume mainstream media. Let's go consume a truthful alternative media. Let's consume different ones and compare them to see which one is the most truthful. Um, so, you know, part of it's the media's fault, part of it's the people's fault too, I think as as well. And, and I've heard repeatedly from people throughout the COVID thing, um, that they they uh, they be, they begin they begun to wake up and realize when they started to consume some more alternative media sources. It sounds ridiculous to me because I mean I've never been roped in by mainstream media sources because I've just always been that kind of guy. But 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 for some people that's a big deal. And you know I, I had a lot of number of people that came to me in in 2020 when I was the crazy conspiracy theorist that they thought was awful. And said, oh, geez, you're right. You know, one of the ways I realized that you were right is because of the BLM protests. And I started to pay attention to what was going on there and the mainstream media's narrative about it and the inconsistencies. And then, and then I started watching some alternative news and started get, starting get, getting some actual truth. And now I've changed my views on the whole thing, right? I heard that over and over and over again. So it can happen and it can be really good when it happens. And that's that's what has to happen. People have to unplug from uh, the CBC, Global News, whatever, stop caring about what they say or don't say and just start, you know, consuming alternative media or even producing the media themselves. We've shown a proliferation of alternative media sources over the last two or three years. That's a good thing. That's a, that's a, that's a source of hope right there that there's that, that because of the technology we have now, um, we can have these sort of small independent journalists who can go out and, um, give people the actual truth. Thank you very much. So, James, that's it for uh, questions. On behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry, we, we sincerely thank you for participating today. Thank you. It's my honor.